0: Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you're listening to The Schwepp, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast, online at Schwepp.net. Episode 64, The Enigma of Early Christianity. In this episode, we've proposed an even more impossible than usual task to sum up the evidence on early Christianity. Now this is impossible, but before we get to why it's impossible, maybe we should say why it's necessary to introduce Christianity at all in a podcast like this one. Well, gentle listeners, a moment or two of reflection shows us that Christianity is in many ways the matrix of Western esotericism. And this sort of holds true by most of the possible definitions of Western esotericism we might choose. It is at least a very important religious movement to get your head around if you want to study Western esotericism. And here at the Schwepp we have a quest for completeness. So we want to cover how it arose, how it came about, the origins of Christianity. So that's the why, but it's also the why impossible. Because the origins of Christianity are, it turns out, deeply mysterious. Fundamentalist Christians will disagree here, of course. For them, the New Testament tells us everything we need to know about Jesus and the so-called early church or primitive church. But This might also seem surprising to people who aren't Christian fundies, but are simply non-specialists. After all, this religion shows up in the 1st century CE in the Roman Empire, a time and place for which we actually have a lot of documentation. Yes, well, the problem is we have a lot of documentation, but of the wrong sorts of stuff. If you want an account of the decline of the Roman Republic and the rise of the Principate, we can give you numerous extant historical works, plus a big archaeological record of inscriptions and stuff like that. If you want to know about traditional Greco-Roman religious myths, we have Greek and Latin poets narrating these myths. But if you want to know about the internal affairs of the Jews, that is, early Christianity, we have, well, we have various little references here and there, but for the most part, the Greeks and Romans just didn't care what the Jews were up to until they started causing trouble. We have the historian Josephus, and we have the New Testament. And the New Testament is not a particularly complete picture of what was going on, nor does it subscribe to what we might call the scholarly standards of objectivity. So what we can do in this episode, which I think will be useful, is survey some of the ideas scholars have come up with as to what early Christianity was probably like, why it arose, and so forth. To do that, we'll first have our usual look at the sources in a bit more detail to get a picture of how we know what we know, and then we'll consider three different stories about what Christianity was in its earliest form, each of which has a reputable scholarly pedigree. Story number one, Christianity was basically a development of trends already seen in apocalyptic Judaism. Story number two, a related story, Christianity arose primarily as a Jewish messianic revolutionary movement aimed at freeing Palestine from Roman domination. Number three, Christianity was first and foremost a Hellenistic religion, based in the same tropes and structures as the contemporary pagan cults of the Hellenistic and Roman worlds. Each of these stories has considerable evidence to support it, and so each is probably a slice or facet of the real picture. Now before we dive into the sources, a brief note on quests. There are two main quests when we're talking about Christian origins. The quest for early Christianity and what it was really like which is what we'll be dealing with in this episode, and the quest for the historical Jesus. This latter quest can be traced back to the 17th century with the work of the scholar Raimarus, but really came into its own in the 19th century, at which point one could get away with being pretty skeptical about the historical accuracy of the Gospels, at least in some places. German scholars in the 19th century in particular had a long, hard look at the Bible and came to some startling conclusions about Jesus. Strauss thought that any historical element in the gospel stories was unretrievable, being entirely overlaid with religious myth. And in 1906, Albert Schweitzer published the original German version of what is known in English as The Quest for the Historical Jesus, a very influential book, and the source, incidentally, for all this quest terminology, which was a major milestone in trying to sort what we know from what we can't. The status of the question, or the quest, is that what little we can know about Jesus the man is very little. And what has once seemed like certainties are now considered by most scholars to be unanswered questions that are never going to get answered unless someone invents a time machine. So we shall not be addressing the quest for the historical Jesus in this episode. We want to talk about the movement centered on the figure of Jesus. So first of all, to the sources. Most of what we know about Christianity comes from the 3rd century CE and later that's the first fact we need to get our heads around. For several hundred years, not a lot seems to have been written down about this movement, and we don't have that much evidence that it made much of a splash outside of Jewish communities. There's a widespread idea that the early Christian churches were sort of persecuted by the Roman state from day one, but this is false. The first real persecution, under a kind of central guidance, took place under the emperor Decius in the years 249 to 251. So if we take Jesus's notional birthday as 1 CE or 1 AD, because that's the appropriate scale to use in this context, that's a good 200 years of Christianity before the central authorities in Rome really took much notice of it. Now, this isn't the whole story. The Roman writer Pliny, the governor of Bithynia, which was a Roman province in modern-day Turkey, he wrote a letter which survives to the emperor Trajan sometime around the year 112 asking how he should punish the Christians in his realm. And he calls them Christiani, who were committing impious acts like disrespecting statues of the gods. So, clearly, around the year 112, Christians already exist by that name, recognized by a Roman outsider, outside of Palestine. And they're attracting official attention of a negative sort, because they are a suspect superstitio, a Latin word which in this context means something like false or bad religion rather than superstition. There was friction quite early on, this is clear, but the problem here is that this applies to Jews generally, especially after the Great Jewish Revolt of the 60s CE, and we can't be sure to what degree Pliny thinks of these Christians apart from the many other sects of Jews whom the Roman state was concerned with suppressing and punishing. Tacitus and many other um, historical sources for this period bespeak a hatred of the Jews, and in Tacitus' case, specifically of the Roman Jews, and in ways which are entirely cognate with what we find in Pliny applied to the Christians. So we have, in short, some evidence from non Christian sources from the early century CE the ones we've just mentioned and others, but what we don't have is enough to say for sure whether Romans and other outside observers, or Jews, thought of Christianity as what we would call a separate religion from Judaism. Some scholars want to consider all Christianity of the first century as Jewish Christianity, a term meant to designate Jews identified as such by themselves, so people who think of themselves as Jews, who thought that Jesus was the Messiah or thought of him as a similarly important figure. There certainly was such a thing as Jewish Christianity, although of course the name Jewish Christianity is a modern scholarly coinage, but the point of separation of what we might call confessional Christianity from its Jewish matrix is impossible to pin down. So, we can then turn to the Bible itself for evidence. As listeners will be able to imagine, the amount of scholarship which has gone into trying to figure out the New Testament and how it all fits together is really extensive. But don't worry. We have a little box which dampens our innate love of textual criticism, and we are now turning it up to 11 to avoid having to get into the details of this stuff, which we find fascinating, but you probably don't. So what follows is a brief summary of the state of play, hopefully avoiding anything very controversial. So our earliest canonical sources for Christianity are not the Gospels, but the letters of St. Paul. These are agreed to be earlier than the Gospels and all the rest of the New Testament, Paul died sometime in the 60s CE. So his letters really are quite early material, and they're addressed to various Christian churches or Christian groups. So they tell us a lot about the early movement. For one thing, they tell us that different groups of Christians had very different takes on what they thought they were doing, and Paul is going to set them straight. Now, problems here include the fact that some of the letters of Paul are widely seen as not really being by Paul, but no one can agree 100% on which ones are pseudo-Paul and which ones are Paul. And the fact that Paul, considering he's meant to be a convert to this new thing called Christianity, seems almost completely uninterested in the life of Jesus. In terms of Jesus did this, then he went here, then he was crucified and resurrected. Paul gives us nothing. So the Acts of the Apostles, which is a later document that's part of the New Testament, dating from around 80 to 90 CE, in turn tells us almost everything we know about Paul. We can probably say, however, that Paul really was a Roman citizen and a Jew who later converted to Christianity, if converted is the right word. It might have been more like he later realized that the Christian strand of Judaism was in fact the right one, and the Messiah had indeed come. But Paul is very uninformative about the life of Jesus. Turning to the Gospels, that is the four different life story narratives given about Jesus, we do learn about his life. But of course, the accounts are full of contradictions. Their chronological dating seems to go Mark, Matthew, Luke, and then lastly, John. Incidentally, Luke and the Acts of the Apostles, which tells us the story of the early church, are really a single work by a single author. So scholars refer to it as Luke Acts. The dating of the four gospels is roughly 66 to 70 CE for Mark, 80 to 90 for Matthew, but some scholars want to put it a few decades earlier or later. Ditto for Luke Acts, but some scholars. One a few decades later, and 90 to 110 for the final form of John, which is thought to have undergone several rewritings. So, in a nutshell, the Gospels can all be dated toward the end of the first century CE. Three of them Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the so called synoptic Gospels, in that they share a large amount of material. Textual scholarship has revealed that this is because they share a common textual source called Q in the literature, from the German word Quelle, meaning source or spring, because the Germans are the ones who really hashed this stuff out. Q no longer survives, but we can see it lurking behind the texts. So it's a hypothetical document, which we know must have existed and that all these gospel writers had access to. And we can note in passing here that the gospels are full of contradictory factual statements about Jesus's life. So if you're a biblical literalist, you have your work cut out for you. But as a historian too, this lack of unanimity immediately raises problems about the historicity of the Gospels as a whole. If we have three different accounts of the crucifixion and resurrection, which we do, how are we supposed to conclude that it really happened? Or if it did happen, how can we know any of the details if they're all different and key points? And if we want to accept this or that account, let's say we, we want to go for Matthew because we think that's the right one, what do we base our choice on? At the end of the day, The Gospels may well have that elusive kernel of truth within them, but the problem is not saying that it's there. You can say, yeah, there's a kernel of truth in there. A lot of people will agree with you. The problem is identifying it exactly and saying, here it is, this is how it really happened because we've isolated the kernel of truth. So that's Paul and the Gospels. There's more to the New Testament, but we'll get to it in due course. For now, let's move on to our stories of the early church and what it was all about. So, story the first. Christianity was a development from apocalyptic Judaism, which, due to unforeseeable historical circumstances, eventually evolved into something non-Jewish. We've seen this basic story already in the podcast Citing Gershom Sholem in episode 51 on First Enoch, and it explains a lot. Let's review a few things about apocalyptic Judaism. This is Second Temple Judaism, which produced the documents we know as Apocalypses, and while everyone agrees that these documents exist, scholars disagree over what exactly an apocalyptic Judaism might look like. Nevertheless, the kinds of Jews who were producing these documents, if we want to call them apocalyptic Jews or not, they did tend to have some strange and new ideas in common. And these are significantly central ideas in Christianity. First is the idea of the Messiah, the anointed one, who will come in the future to lead Israel back to glory. And the Messiah will be a descendant of King David, according to many accounts. Now, Christos, the Greek word, which is Christ in English, means anointed one. So the Christos is basically the Messiah. The biblical accounts clearly indicate that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, regardless of whether they're also trying to say that he's the son of God or he's God or what have you, which is a much more difficult issue to decide on, as we'll see. Christianity has a Messiah, a central figure of apocalyptic writings like the animal apocalypse in First Enoch and, and many others. Some Gospels make a point of tracing Jesus' lineage to David. So he's even got the, the right bloodline, even though the tracing seems to go through his father Joseph, who, according to other Gospel accounts, isn't really his father because his mother was a virgin. So it doesn't make any sense at all. But anyway, the point is, Jesus is a descendant of David. Then we have a second innovation found in Jewish apocalyptic, the expectation of a coming end time, which we've talked about in the podcast. Christianity also has this in a big way. Indeed, there are statements like Mark 9.1, where Jesus says, "'Verily I say unto you, "'that there be some of them that stand here, "'which shall not taste of death, "'till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power.'" It sounds like a man-of-war lyric, But this and other passages make it clear that the author of Mark, anyway, was expecting the end times to be, like, next week. Some early Christians, then, were expecting to see the end times within their lifetime, and if not within their lifetime, they were definitely coming. So based on these two factors alone, the Messiah and the end times, it's easy to see why, once scholars really got a grip with the whole range of apocalyptic literature and related texts like the Dead Sea Scrolls from Qumran— which show cognate ideas, they looked at early Christianity and said, ha-ha, this is a particular flavor of apocalyptic Judaism. Then we can add the fact that the Christian canon actually contains an apocalypse, the Book of Revelations, which fits seamlessly into the Jewish apocalyptic genre, not just in expecting an end times and having a redeemer figure, but in its use of symbolism and myth and Old Testament prophecy. So it seems like an open and shut case. Christianity is a development from... Apocalyptic Judaism. Now, our second story about early Christianity is linked to the first, but concentrates more on politics. This is the narrative which posits Jesus as indeed a Messiah figure, but one actively engaged in fighting against the Roman rule in Palestine, which is, after all, what the Messiah was supposed to do, right? He's going to kick out the foreigners and restore Israel as a political entity. Earlier, Messiahs had been um, posited as kicking out the Hellenistic rulers, but now the Romans have taken over we have to kick them out. We see hints of this in the Gospels as well. So at John 6.15, for example, the Jewish crowd tries to crown Jesus king. So why do you crown someone king? You know, Christians want to read this as some kind of symbolic appreciation of Jesus' spiritual role. So he's the king of kings who transcends earthly power altogether. But most scholars would want to read this as a concrete political statement. You don't get a mob together and put a crown on someone's head because of some kind of subtle appreciation of their spiritual role. You do it because you're, you want to say, this guy is the king. This political interpretation to the story also explains the crucifixion. Crucifixion was the Romans' favorite method of dealing with perceived enemies of the state. We know this. We know from Josephus that there were other messianic pretenders in the region before Jesus' time And it may even have been the case that the first thing you did upon declaring an anti-Roman uprising was claim to be the Messiah, provided you had a hope of convincing anyone. Presumably being descended from King David really helped. Eusebius tells us that the Emperor Vespasian ordered that all the descendants of King David be ferreted out and put on a kind of watch list. And Domitian allegedly ordered their execution. So basically had all the descendants of King David killed, or as many as he could get his hands on. If this story is true, and it may not be, it supports the idea that messiahship was a live political issue in the first century, which is really what we would expect, and that the stakes were very high on both sides, on the Jewish side and on the Roman side. The Romans would certainly not have paid much attention to the internal Jewish dialogue about a coming messiah if it had not proved politically troublesome, because they were very practical people and they didn't really care about your religion as long as you paid your taxes and didn't uh, foment rebellion. Now, there's a lot of speculation about this role of Christ as a revolutionary figure, and the evidence can pull both ways. So if you take the so-called messianic secret in Mark, in the Gospel of Mark, where people keep going up to Jesus and say, you're the Messiah, and Jesus goes, shh, quiet, quiet, quiet. So this is hard to interpret, the messianic secret, and might be taken to mean that Jesus didn't want to get mixed up in this dangerous political game. So he's saying, quiet, don't say I'm the Messiah or someone's going to kill me. Alternately, some scholars read it as supporting this revolutionary thesis. Jesus is saying, Shh, yes, I'm the Messiah, but keep quiet about it until the time is right to strike. The fact that Jesus is depicted in the Gospels as getting much more flack from the Jewish establishment than from the Romans establishment is also a tough one to interpret. But at the least, it's safe to say that the Gospel authors being concerned to paint Jesus as the Messiah are thus automatically depicting him as someone who, in normal Jewish understanding of the time, would be sent by God to refound the Jewish kingdom of King David. The fact that Jesus failed to do this is another story, and obviously Christianity in the end made a virtue of this seeming failure, but we shouldn't discount the possibility that when whatever Jesus was doing, and whatever his earliest followers were doing, some at least of them were thinking about an end to Roman occupation of Palestine, just like all the other crucified would-be messiahs, of which there were many. Now, Let's look at a third story about early Christianity. Early Christianity as Hellenistic religious movement. This story helps us explain a lot of the stuff we find in Christianity which just isn't Jewish. First of all, it's obvious but it maybe bears noting that the entire canon of the Christian scriptures as it became established is written in Greek as its first language. Nothing new here, we know that Greek was the first language of a a huge number of Jews in the Hellenistic and post-Hellenistic worlds, many Jews only spoke Greek, but it's notable nonetheless, because whatever this movement was, this early Christian movement, at least it wasn't an archaizing Jewish sort of back-to-the-roots movement, like the folks who at the same time were trying to revive Hebrew and they were sort of hating on everything Greek. The Gospels and related writings find themselves completely at home in the Eastern Mediterranean, cosmopolitan, Greek-speaking world, and all the um, churches that Paul writes his letters to are in, you know, thriving Greek cities of the Eastern Mediterranean. Another general point, scholars have noted a move across Hellenistic religions, away from temple-based cults, whose main ritual action was animal sacrifice, which had been the main uh, form of religious cult in the Mediterranean since time immemorial, and toward cults based on a particular human being and or a notional other world of some kind, who didn't practice animal sacrifice. Jonathan Z. Smith calls this dichotomy the locative utopian dichotomy. Hellenistic religions generally show a move from the locative, temple-based sacrifice, to the utopian, otherworld, holy man. Christianity, once it emerges into the light of history, is fully utopian. Just as Second Temple Judaism, with its temple cult and regular sacrifices, had been locative, but we can sort of see the transformation of that in a more Hellenistic, Utopian direction in the historical record. So, Christianity certainly fits into this general developmental structure of what happened to religions during the Hellenistic and Roman period. Now, what else is generally Hellenistic about Christianity? Well, the fact that Jesus dies and is resurrected, for starters, as many scholars have noted and made much of, the theme of the dying and resurrected God was common to many Mediterranean cultures. The Egyptians had Osiris, the Greeks had Dionysus, Adonis and Attis. The latter two are borrowings from the Near East. And they also had the many mystery cults, which involved symbolic death and rebirth, sometimes of humans, sometimes of gods, sometimes of both. And the Near East had Tammuz and others. The place where we never find the dying resurrected God before Christianity is in Judaism. So this has led scholars to postulate outside influence, the Hellenic mysteries being maybe the most commonly cited culprit. Now, James George Fraser's famous book, The Golden Bough, was of course the most famous formulator of this idea. And despite the fact that the work has been rightly lambasted in scholarship as an ahistorical farrago, the fact remains that dying and resurrected gods or demigods appear throughout classical Greek thought, but never in Jewish thought until suddenly Christianity. We can add in this context that what little early iconography we have from Christianity references Greek gods very often. So we have Christ depicted as Apollo the charioteer, and we have an awful lot of Dionysian imagery found at early Christian sites. There might be more of this as well, precisely because there was obviously borrowing going on. We might well have pieces of religious iconography from the first century which are Actually, of Christian provenance, but we don't even know it because scholars, you know, see a wall with frescoes of grapes and they say, ah, this is obviously a site of Dionysian cult, but maybe it was actually a Christian conventicle. We don't know. Turning to the idea of a spiritual salvation or rebirth, this really is the territory of the mystery cults, as we discussed in episode 12 of the podcast. While Hellenistic kings and Zeus and other gods, are, of course, regularly described as saviors, soteres in Greek. They are saviors in a concrete, very this-worldly sense. So, Poseidon the savior is Poseidon the guy who makes your ship not sink in the storm, right? He's not Poseidon who makes you live forever in a blessed afterlife. Turning to the savior figures adumbrated in Jewish apocalyptic, we start to see something new. So, in pre-Christian Jewish apocalypticism, we find the messianic idea of salvation, in the concrete political sense, alongside ideas of a separation of the righteous from the unrighteous in the end times, sometimes with a concept of a meaningful, ethicized afterlife. Now, a robust afterlife for an elect was something that the Hellenic mysteries had been promising maybe since prehistoric times. Indeed, as John Collins mentioned in episode 50, It is by no means implausible to speculate that this idea entered into Judaism from the mysteries. But be that as it may, while we certainly find many of the elements of Jesus's role as Redeemer and grantor of eternal life in earlier Apocalypse, there does still seem to be a whiff, at least, of the Greek mysteries about the doctrine as we find it in Christianity, certainly as it develops in later Christianity. Another intriguingly Hellenistic-seeming feature of Christianity is the curious fact that much of the terminology and iconography associated with Christ, as a demigod or as a son of God or as a king of kings and so forth, can be found in the by now traditional cult of the Hellenistic kings. These kings were often given divine honors during their lives and after their deaths, and the Roman emperors adopted this tradition wholeheartedly in the new provinces of the east, especially where the subject population was already used to it, right? And from the Eastern Empire, it seems to have spread gradually west, back to Rome herself, and then to the Western Empire, and eventually became a major part of imperial propaganda across the empire, a kind of linking cult that linked together all of Rome, the cult of the emperor. An inscription dedicated to Julius Caesar at Ephesus. Now this is Julius Caesar, mind, not even an emperor, but a sort of pre-emperor, late republican warlord. This inscription from Ephesus reads, God made manifest, offspring of Ares and Aphrodite, common savior of human life. Now this has a certain Christian ring about it. If you replace Ares and Aphrodite with just God, it could easily be Christian. And take another inscription, this one from Pergamum, and dedicated to Augustus, the first emperor. Caesar, autocrator, son of God, the god Augustus, overseer of every land and sea. Now, we should say here that this son of God terminology also exists in Jewish prophecy and apocalyptic. Um, And Jesus's titles may be drawing on this stream as well, keeping in mind um, that scholars don't think that son of God in the pre-Christian Jewish context means anything like literally son of God, but is rather an epithet indicating the honored position of the Messiah. So between the prophetic vocabulary And this Hellenistic vocabulary, we can really see the ingredients for the way Jesus is described in the earliest sources. Now, this is fascinating stuff, but as with all this material, scholars make different things out of it. We can say for sure that the way in which Jesus is depicted in some of the earliest source material is, to some degree, drawing on Hellenistic and Roman models of kingship as a divine or son of divine affair. And we can also say that many titles given to Jesus, like Son of God, Autocrator, Pantocrator, Savior, etc., etc., were already in use in more concrete political contexts, which had absolutely nothing to do with saving souls or anything like that, but just indicated a divine person in the person of the king. And speaking of divine people, this brings us to yet another Hellenistic trope, which some scholars see as a defining characteristic of early Christianity, And this is the trope of the theos aner, or divine man. So this is a category in the later Hellenistic mind, something like a wonder-working sage who often wanders around. We shall say more about this trope in the next episode, when we discuss the other great divine miracle worker of the first century, Apollonius of Tiana. So for now, let's just say that many scholars have found this trope at the heart of Christianity. Jews living in the Hellenistic world were exposed to Hellenistic ideas, and when they found this fellow Christ, they molded him into the model of the Theos Aner and came up with Jesus as we know him in the Bible accounts. Others can say that this is a ridiculous idea, and indeed the dating doesn't work that well, as the Theos Aner as a kind of wandering miracle-working sage doesn't really appear before Jesus' lifetime. So you can always turn the argument around and say, obviously these miracle workers like Apollonius of Tiana, were ripoffs of Jesus. We'll return to this debate in the next episode. So, there you have three stories. There are others, but I feel like these three are perhaps the most informative. So, a safe, if cowardly, position to take is that each of these stories preserves some facet or facets of what was really going on in the early Christian movement or the early Jesus movement. One thing which bears repeated emphasis is the Jewish nature of this movement there was a point or points at which Christianity became something other than Judaism. But the movements known as Jewish Christianity, that is, law-observant Jews who believed Jesus was in some way special, he might be the Messiah, this movement, Jewish Christianity, persisted for hundreds of years alongside the Christians who eventually separated off into a religion, in quotes. So We have a delightful apocalypse, the Ascension of Isaiah, which might be as late as the third century CE, and which seems to be Jewish Christian to the hilt. So if it is as late as the third century, that shows there were apocalyptic Jewish Christians writing well into the era when there really is such a thing as Christianity as a kind of separate non-Jewish religion. When we get to Gnosticism in the podcast, we shall again encounter the haziest of lines between this thing that we define as Judaism and other movements which we want to call something else. But keen listeners will hopefully recall our episodes on Second Temple Judaism where we emphasized just how diverse this phenomenon really was. Any religion which could produce First Enoch and Philo of Alexandria could not be some kind of monolithic orthodoxy in the nature of things. It's just impossible. So whatever the admixture of Hellenistic ideas from outside of Judaism, which contributed to the character of early Jesus movement, there was still an irreducible Jewish structure present until this was cast aside at some later point, which we can't quite specify, and which was probably a process taking hundreds of years. And we might as well say that probably misleading to talk about Hellenistic influence from outside of Judaism, because although there were debates and polemics and invective around this issue of identity in the Jewish communities, most of the Jewish communities of the Eastern Mediterranean were Hellenistic communities. So that's that. And now we will bid farewell to our early Christians, Jewish as they may be, Hellenicized as they may be, and believing whatever it is that they believed— When we next encounter Christianity, it will be in a newfound context, one in which it has acquired an identity of its own and is willing to kill to protect that identity, even while negotiating its exact contours. But before we get there, we should discuss the great Apollonius, the first century pagans' answer to this upstart Jesus, and a hero of Western esotericism, especially in the Islamic world, as we shall see. So join us next time for that, and until then, like the messianic secret in the Gospel of Mark and stay esoteric.